0: Hello, my name is Artemis Fotiado and this is Our Histories, the podcast of the LSE's International History Department. In this episode, I am joined by Dr. Paul Stock to discuss his book on Europe and the British Geographical Imagination, covering the years from 1760 to 1830, tracing what ordinary British people understood by the word Europe during this period. I begin by asking Paul what first triggered his interest in this question.
1: This has been a project that's been in gestation for a very long time. Um, I've been working on this area for about 15 years, something like that. And I suppose my interest in it initially emerged from the very contemporary issues that Britain and Europe have experienced. I mean, it's been a very long sort of rather turbulent relationship between Britain and the European Union in recent times. And that's intrigued me ever since I was a student. And what I wanted to do with this project and with earlier work is to investigate those questions um, back in time, to go further back into the past and to try to understand a little bit more about that relationship and about how British um, people and British society has conceptualized Europe um, right back into the early modern period. So it's been an ambition of mine to um, write this book for a very long period, and I'm delighted that it's complete now. But um, there's a lot to say, I think, here about how the issues that I'm talking about in the book relate to um, contemporary questions as well as questions in the past.
0: As you say, it's a a long history. So how did you go about um, determining which period to study and why did you decide on 1760 to 80?
1: 30. Well that's a a question with um two half to the answer really. Um, I've always been a specialist in the 18th and 19th century and I suppose the reasons why historians become specialists in particular periods can be a little bit mysterious in some respects. I remember studying a lot of um, that period as an undergraduate and then as a master's student and the dynamism, the um, political changes in that period were always something that appealed to me and it made sense when I started to think about this project that I would focus. Focus on that broad period, roughly. And the reason why I chose 1760 to 1830 is more specific. I wanted to look at a substantial period of time before and after the French Revolution. Usually the French Revolution is sort of seen as the kind of great turning point of 18th century history. It's obviously a kind of classicismic event um, socially and politically. And what I wanted to do really was to test whether or not um, British ideas of Europe altered um, over the course of the revolutionary period and the Napoleonic Wars that followed. And so it made sense, therefore, to pick a period of time that encompassed several decades either side of that event so that I could really learn to understand the extent to which those very large-scale changes influenced British conceptions of the continent.
0: How prominent was Europe in 18th century British thought?
1: Well, very prominent. I think that um, one of the interesting things about Um, this period is that ideas about Europe are all over British intellectual culture um, throughout the 18th century. I think we need to remember that throughout most of this period, then the sort of cultural driving forces are France in the 18th century with its um, enormous, it's the most powerful country in Europe in this period, of course, but also has a great degree of uh, cultural power as well as um, military authority. And also, of course, those Italian-speaking cultures on the Italian peninsula related to their classical backgrounds and even further back to um, ancient Greece, of course, and then the legacy that that had in Rome itself. So the 18th century is a culture that's steeped in um, the past, in classical history, and moreover in a kind of um, pan-European classicism, I suppose, or classically derived cultures, that also influences to a great degree what's going on in Britain. So we see um, British people aspiring to learn French, to learn Latin, to understand the classical past. And what's interesting, I think, about this period from a British perspective is that that, um, if you like, um, europhilia, Goes alongside an increasing desire to distinguish oneself from other European countries, whether that's on grounds of religion or political tradition and so forth. So these two um, currents in intellectual thought are operating simultaneously throughout the 18th century. And I think it's also something that I think will be fairly obvious to most listeners that that's continued today that sort of impetus to be a part of Europe and also to distinguish oneself from it.
0: What would you say was the the first contact a literate person in Britain in the 18th century would have had with Europe? Was it religion? Was it through reading, Um, education?
1: Well, probably all of those things. And in a sense, the point of this book is to try to investigate what an ordinary literate British person would have thought about Europe in the period. Um, This is a work of intellectual history. It's a work about the history of ideas. And the usual way that one would go about a project like this would be to assemble the views of various prominent thinkers. And there are a huge number of Sort of influential intellectuals that one could choose to study in this period as any other. But what I wanted to do with this project was to think more carefully about what ordinary literate liter- British people would think. And the way I decided to do that was to try to read the books that they would have read. So, nowadays, in contemporary culture, most people, I think, if they want to find out about something, would turn to the internet and would usually end up reading the Wikipedia entry on something. I mean, that's become a fairly standard practice um, in contemporary society. And so, what I wanted to do was try to find the equivalent of wikipedia in the 18th century and so i ended up reading um geographical textbooks um geographic encyclopedias school books the sort of materials that if you were generally interested in a topic they you would turn to these as your reference books And my thesis, if you like, for this project was to read large numbers of these books um, from huge, great multi-volume encyclopedias right down to cheapest chips, um, geographical gazetteers, which you would be able to um, purchase inexpensively and assemble all of the different ideas about Europe that those different texts cover and then use those collected ideas to then um, formulate a more general understanding of how British literate people would have approached this topic in the 18th century.
0: And, I mean, this broad genre of, I think, geography books is uh, what you specify in the book. What purposes um, did, did they serve at the time?
1: Well, they're, they're general reference books, so they function really as encyclopedias um or as school textbooks. So quite a lot of the books I read would have been used in some sort of educational setting, um, possibly in a classroom, possibly as part of private tuition. There were a few that were set as textbooks as um, in university study or in um, what we now describe as adult education or sort of um, lectures that one could pay to go along to listen to in the 18th century. Others would have been in um, reference libraries. Quite a lot were collectible in the sense that they were published as part works over a long period of time and the idea that somebody would um, buy them in pieces and then end up with a kind of complete geographical encyclopedia. And one of the interesting things about them is that they are are designed to appeal to a very wide range of people. So there's evidence that I found that some of these materials were being used by aristocrats and indeed monarchs as part of their education in the 18th century, and others were targeted at um, professional people, at what we'd now describe as working class people who could read. So, in other words, when one takes the whole sweep of these texts. Then they cover virtually every as and every sort of layer of society who could a- have access to books and who could read them. But these are not travel guide books. Um I mean, they did exist in the eighteenth century, and perhaps that's the subject for another conversation because they they were in increasingly important in allowing people to access um, the Grand Tour and other forms of tourism, um, especially in the the later part of the 18th and the early 19th century. But the books I'm talking about in this project are basically not designed to be travelled with. I mean, a few would have been, they would be sort of one volume pocketbooks that you could travel around with if you wanted to. But what they generally didn't do is give you any kind of travel tips or information. I mean, these are books which, for example, in their different entries, they cover the history of a country, they cover its physical geography, but they're not telling you which inns to stop at or what's worth seeing at any of the major locations. And some of the books are physically very enormous. I mean, we're talking sets with maybe 20 or 30 different volumes. And I suppose one could have hired a carriage and carted them around with you, but I'm not aware that anybody actually did that. I mean, these are books to look good in a library if you own them, or to have in a library and then to refer to in the comfort of your home. And I think part of the attraction of them is that they allow people to go on these mental journeys to places where they would not probably visit in their lifetimes, but allowed them to enter imaginatively into um, that kind of... Um, well, imagined travel, I suppose. And there is evidence to suggest that people read them in that manner, that as an entertainment in the evenings, one would read the entry on a particular country and then discuss it with one's friends. There are, there are diary entries that suggest people did do that.
0: In these books, what was uh, considered as Europe, geographically speaking?
1: If I can try to be as concise as possible, one of the very issues that the book tries to uncover is what the limits of Europe are. And that's not a straightforward question. Um, It wasn't a straightforward question in the period in the same way that it's not a straightforward question now. And there's a lot of interest in the kind of countries at the edge, if you like. Um, So there's debate about whether Russia is a European country or not. The general consensus in the 18th century is that it probably is a European country, but of course, at some point, because of the size of the country, at some point, it also becomes an Asian country. And there are debates about where to draw the line, literally, um, between the two different um, continents. Another point of contention is the Ottoman Empire. Now, there's a lot of disconcertation about the Ottoman Empire in the 18th century because, to put it crudely, a lot of um, the geographical texts that I examined didn't want to include it in Europe predominantly because it's a Muslim state. Um, But the problem with doing that, of course, is the Ottomans also ruled Greece. And a lot of the European textbooks want to lay claim to Greece as being part of Europe's legacy. And so they often tie themselves in conceptual knots, trying to explain why the Ottoman Empire is both European and not European at the same time. And then, of course, the rest of Europe is surrounded by sea, and even that causes some conceptual problems, because is the sea a border? Is it some kind of boundary zone, which one can interpret as being part of Europe? Is it a space that's shared by the continents? So, I mean, a lot of the textbooks argue, for example, that the Mediterranean is a European sea, which, of course, is a slightly odd argument, because why is it not an African sea, Um, And so a lot of the books investigate these problems in some detail. And what I try to do in my book is to draw out what the essence of these arguments are and to systematize them so that um, the reader of my book can appreciate precisely what the terms of contestation are. And then to draw some conclusions about what are perhaps the most prominent kinds of argument in the period.
0: So just to talk about Russia specifically, that it was considered part of Europe, was that on uh, religious grounds?
1: Partly, yes. I mean, there's, um, th- there's a conviction that I think Russia has entered into um, the system of European statecraft um, by the late 18th century and it's a power that participates in European politics and is interested in engaging with questions of European diplomacy. I mean, that's an assumption that a lot of the books make. It's, you know, and of course, one could contest that, I think, on a variety of different grounds. But one of the interesting, I think, um, patterns that I noticed in investigating the geography books is that a lot of them have a great deal of time for Peter the Great of Russia. They argue that he is a particularly important figure in integrating Russia into European affairs. And of course, the interesting thing about that is that that was precisely Peter's objective as a ruler to try to make um, Russia much more fully engaged with European countries, European politics and European statecraft. And so in a sense, I think what we're detecting in those books which endorse that view is perhaps the success of Peter's propaganda project that he had promoted um, Europe as a, or rather Russia, as a European country. And then by the end of the 18th century, that's become a widely accepted view throughout um, British culture at least. And so while I can't, you know, I'm not a specialist in the history of, of Russia or indeed of um, Peter's political endeavours, it strikes me as potentially a very interesting line for further inquiry that a lot of his um, assumptions and predilections about Europe seem to be quite widely accepted um, in Britain um, by the end of the 18th century
0: today, for example, we accept France and Germany uh, very often as being at the heart of Europe. Was there a a similar association at the time with Germanic states and France, or was there a different um, state that was seen as ideal Europe?
1: Yes, to some extent, the the situation is is similar. Um, France occupies an ambivalent position. I mean, I I alluded in an earlier answer to the mixed role that France plays in British 18th century culture. It's It's a great rival, it's a great enemy in some respects, but also it's um, a state and a culture to which many British people aspire. I mean, let's not forget, of course, that the, the language of international communication in this period is French. And so France opera- sort of operates in this rather ambiguous zone of being a sort of place of aspiration, but also a place to be feared. Um, and so that places it in an important role in at the centre of Europe, um, conceptually speaking. But i suggest in a sense that British geography books see the central places in Europe as two other um, locations. Firstly, Germany. There's a lot of interest in the German states as a kind of collective of smaller states which together form a greater whole. And we can see here how conceptually that idea might also be applied to Europe more widely. So there's an idea that, if you like, the German states or the Holy Roman Empire um, encapsulates an idea of what Europe itself is, which is an array of smaller states which are connected by some things and divided by others, but can be considered as a whole. And the other candidate for the ideal European state is, perhaps unsurprisingly, Britain itself. A lot of these British geography books assume that the best European country is Britain, precisely because of the various um, political and constitutional advantages that those partisan writers detect in Britain. And one of the interesting things that they're doing in making that argument is they're saying, yes, Britain is distinct and Britain is special, but it's not separate. It's just the best kind of European country, rather than being a country that's outside of Europe.
0: How was it that Britain saw itself as part of Europe? Was that on uh, religious grounds?
1: Well, there's a whole host of reasons here, and but I mean, just to take two examples, I mean, a lot of the geography textbooks assume that Christianity is fundamental to European identity, and a lot of them assume that what they describe as being a mixed or a balanced form of government is integral to European identity. And a lot of the books make the argument that Britain represents both of those things. So Britain has, um, obviously it's a a Christian state, but also it's a state that in the minds of writers of these geography books um, has perfected the art of good governments as opposed, of course, to the various kind of inept and tyrannical states, which they supposedly detect in other parts of Europe and indeed in the wider world. So in a sense, the argument proceeds logically in that they identify various characteristics as supposedly representing a European ideal. And then they conclude that because those characteristics are also present in Britain, it means that Britain is the best kind of European country. So the, the argument there is logical in terms of what they're, um, the argument they want to make um, internally. I mean, what I'm not suggesting, of course, in, in repeating these ideas is that they're true in any substantive sense. I mean, we're not dealing in empirical certainties, but what I am suggesting is that these books make those arguments and then using those arguments, they conclude that Britain is the perfect European state.
0: How prevalent was that view in the books that you used? Were there any big divisions like books that did not consider Britain uh, as part of Europe at all? Or was there a consensus that it actually was, but a bit better than Europe proper?
1: There's a reasonably consistent... um... Um, consensus i would say Um, one of the things that perhaps i didn't emphasize previously is quite how many texts i looked at in this project so i read 350 of these geographical books um, plus a lot of the books that they themselves referred to and every encyclopedia article published um or every encyclopaedia article on Europe published in the period that, the, um, the, that my book covers. So that's a huge amount of material, and inevitably within that um, framework, one finds books which aren't you know, within the mainstream of general um, thought. But one of the noticeable things is that the vast majority of them do conclude that Britain is preeminent. I mean there are variations so there are um there are some country, some books that argue you know the the other European states are particularly important too, but the vast majority of them would put Britain right at the top as being a sort of preeminent example of what it means to be a European country. And I think because I had examined so many books from the period, um, I think we can conclude with a reasonable degree of certainty that actually this is quite a widespread view, and that the majority of literate British people would have assumed that um, Britain was the the premier European state, or certainly one of the premier states,
0: was there anything Britain thought other European countries were better at?
1: Oh yes, very much so. I mean, we've we've covered already the aspirations towards um, sort of French high culture. Um, so I mean, the French language, um, French literature, French fashion. Um, the, the classical civilizations of course, had an enormous pulling power on a lot of European states in this period, and we only need to think about the phenomenon of the Grand Tour, where large numbers of young men and women would um, travel around Europe, if you like, to sort of soak up the culture and also to lay claim to it. And one of the paradoxical things about that experience is it's simultaneously an attempt to um, lay claim to and to co-opt aspects of um, continental European culture whilst also to stand back from it. So the idea being that you would come back from your grand tour and um, at the same time develop an affection for aspects of continental European culture whilst also demonstrating one's hostility to other aspects of it. So that um, sort of double-edged nature of British engagement with Europe is, I think, very much alive in this um, period. And it's also something that comes out in the books themselves, where from one paragraph to another, they might um, um, wax lyrical about um, the Achievements, say, of um, French culture, and then in the next paragraph, disparage um, French government and politics.
0: How about Europeans as people? Did um, geography books present them in a particular way?
1: And sometimes, yes, I mean, quite a lot of the books have, if you like, character assassinations of different kinds of people within Europe. Um, So a lot of the um, great cliches about the behaviours and cultures of different European states are present in these books. In fact, many very familiar ones. I won't risk repeating some of them and lending them credibility. But when one reads these books, then one can see, I suppose, the very long history of um, certain kinds of cliched understandings of different European peoples. So these are are present in in the texts. But one of the great questions that the the geography books debate is whether or not one can speak um, collectively of Europeans or not. So can... One identifies certain characteristics which refer to Europeans in totality, which enable us to speak of them as one group of people, or are European peoples divided up into a whole variety of different subgroups? And that question is very prominent in a lot of the book's discussions. And there's an enormous amount of ink spilt over whether or not we can discern between um, individual groups of peoples within Europe and whether it's meaningful to conceptualize the European people as a whole.
0: And did the conception of uh, Europe in general change in the books during the years? Because you you cover a long period of time. did you notice any, any changes, an evolution of thought rather?
1: Yes, to some extent. I mean, I'm, I'm tempted here to give a very evasive answer and to say, well, yes, in some respects and in, in others, no. Um, I mean, clearly we are dealing with a long period of time and there were quite a lot of very significant political events that happened in this period. The most obvious being, of course, the French Revolution and then the kind of enormous reshaping of the continent that took place in the Revolutionary Wars and then the Napoleonic era and then the Congress of Vienna and, and, and so forth. So there are substantial changes that took place. And as you would expect, a lot of these geography books try to narrate those changes and to understand the various alterations in politics and culture that accompanied them. But one of the very surprising things that I did find when working on this project, and one of the things that I'd not expected to find, was the extent to which conceptions of Europe actually remained static over this period. So one of the extraordinary things is that some of these books really don't pay very much attention to contemporary events at all, or they just sort of dismiss them in a couple of um paragraphs or lines in some cases and I mean to, to us now that seems very odd I mean why would a book written I don't know in 1810 or something really pay no attention whatsoever to the French Revolution and the Napoleonic Wars which seem to us now to be such cataclysmic events that they would surely require one to spend a lot of um, time exploring them. And I think the answer to that relative neglect lies in the fact that a lot of these books see Europe as being something that's relatively static. So what they're trying to do is they're trying to define Europe in particular terms and then argue that those terms of definition are quite stable over long periods of time. And then, what they're actually attempting in these books is to show how contemporary events, rather than changing things completely, actually fit into that existing pattern. And therefore, we see a lot of the books arguing, for example, that the French Revolution hasn't changed very much because ultimately the um, criteria and the terms of definition for um, an idea of Europe remain similar despite the events of the French Revolution and that I think that tells us something quite significant about how they conceptualized Europeanness in the period but it also tells us something quite significant about how they understood history itself as well I mean we tend to think of history nowadays in terms of change and I think one of the interesting things this suggests is that people in the 18th and early 19th centuries were to some extent much more interested in continuities and in understanding their contemporary events in terms of long-established patterns, which are not easily overturned by contemporary events.
0: What about the contemporary significance of your findings? I mean, you're very careful in the book not to draw a direct line between then and Brexit or contemporary ideas of of Europe, but did you find any continuities in thought that we see um, uh, still today? Because many of the things you said... uh, people today would would recognize and they're very familiar with. But how about you as a scholar? Um, how do you see your study relating to today?
1: Well, there are continuities. And I think one can read the evidence of this book and find in it arguments that um, appear to cohere with contemporary perspectives on Britain's relationship with the European Union. I mean, you know, one could read it as a remain or, or as a lever, Um, and find in it arguments which seem similar and attractive. Um, And I think that shows, it shows us the sort of extent of debate about this issue. I mean, clearly Britain's relations with other European countries is not some, the controversy surrounding it is not something that's emerged um, only in the last 50 years or so. I mean, there's obviously a very long history to this um, debate. But one of the things I'm very keen to avoid in this book is trying to authenticate one of those viewpoints. I mean, this is not a political tract which is arguing one way or another in terms of where Britain's place in Europe is. I think that would be a very problematic thing to do because inevitably, if one were to try to do that, one would end up writing a political tract that um, co-op, one half of the evidence into the argument and ends up ignoring the other half. I mean, the point I want to make with this book, in a sense, is that these are very long-lasting debates and people in the 18th century were fully aware of the ambiguous position that Britain held with its relationship to other European states. And I think if we try to override that ambiguity in favour of arguing one way or another, in other words, in arguing from what has been termed a remainer perspective or a lever perspective, then we're actually doing a disservice to the complexity of that argument in the period. And so one of the things I have been um, at pains to avoid is trying to, um, or giving the appearance of trying to kind of weigh into that um, present debate. um, Because what I'm interested in to a far greater extent is exposing the longevity of the controversies that underpin current debates.
0: A final question um, for other researchers. Are there any other continents or uh, other empires or parts of the world that uh, you think could be studied in a similar way? Or was Europe quite prevalent in geography books and Um, other places, not so much.
1: Um, Europe is obviously a major part of the geography books, but most of them seek to cover the whole world. So they write about the other continents, not always at the same length. um, And they vary in this respect. I mean, some of them do have a lot of material on other continents, and some of them um, concentrate predominantly on Europe. And so it's certainly one could, if you like, extend the boundaries of this project um, into other continents. And it it is indeed something I may do myself in, in future years. I published an article a few years ago in the English Historical Review about British understandings of America. Um, in this period and that was very much a companion piece to this book that i've just finished um thinking through british ideas of um, um the americas in the same period and i've got a lot of material saved up on asia and africa which at, at some point i would like to explore further um one of i think the sort of disadvantages of the book in a sense is that it can give the impression that most of these geography books are interested exclusively in Europe and that's not the case at all I mean they do cover um, other areas to some extent and that um, the the complications and the um, conceptualisation of other continents is, is something that I think I will explore at some point in the future
0: This was Dr Paul Stock and this was another episode of Our Histories Thank you for listening